Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, A Secret History of the Stars, with Joe Martin and her new book, The Human Cosmos. Joe Martin is an award-winning science journalist. She has a PhD in genetics and medical microbiology from St Bartholomew's Hospital Medical College and an MSc in science communication from Imperial College. She's worked as an editor at New Scientist in Nature and her articles have appeared in The Guardian, Wired, Observer, New York Times and The Washington Post. And she's the author of Decoded in the Heavens, shortlisted for the Royal Society Prize for Science Books and Cure, which was shortlisted for the Royal Society Prize for Science Books and longlisted for the Welcome Book Prize. And Joe's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, The Human Cosmos, A Secret History of the Stars. Joe, welcome back to Little Atom. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so tell us, first of all, what the idea is behind The Human Cosmos. It's really a story of the universe, of the cosmos, if you like, but not the sort of normal story that astronomers might tell, starting with the Big Bang and going through the sort of evolution of galaxies and our solar system. It's it's more to do with the cosmos as we see it. So starting with the very first people who looked to the sky and how they made sense of the stars and following that through the sort of history of humanity. So I was interested in what the influence of the sky has been. So different views of the cosmos, how that's shaped different aspects of human society and civilization. But also now, you know, we've never been more cut off, more isolated from the sky, you know, with light pollution. We can't see the stars in the way that we used to be able to do. And with modern technologies that we have, like watches and sat-navs and air conditioning, electric lights, you know, we live in a way that's very much separated from the cycles of the solar system and, and the cosmos. So I was interested in whether that matters, you know, are we losing anything? So what have the stars kind of given us through history and, and what does it mean if we're no longer really paying attention to them? Yeah, and you, you do sort of pose the question at the beginning of the book, now science, for want of a better word, has sort of supplanted a lot of the ideas that you cover in this book. Um, what is the point of looking at the way that, you know, the ancients used to look at some of these ideas? And so, you know, why do you think, well, what do you think is the point? But also, I guess, as well as the ideas of like light pollution hiding us from, from the sort of greater cosmos, we have these amazing images of the cosmos. We've been out into space, we've explored it. But why do you think we've lost touch with, with some of those ideas as well? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm a massive fan of, of science. My background's in science. I've written a lot about science. I, you know, I love science. And we do have this incredible scientific understanding of the universe. Now we understand more about the physical cosmos than, you know, we ever did before. We've got this sort of unprecedented view into black holes and neutron stars and galaxies and, you know, going back to the Big Bang. And I, I that's fantastic. But I was interested in what has that supplanted in a way. So we have this kind of mathematical sort of physical understanding. I was very struck by the idea that the study of the cosmos used to be about, you know, the meaning of life, if you like, the meaning of existence, the nature of reality. What are we doing in this universe? And now we think of cosmology as a as mathematical astronomy, basically. It's a much, much narrower field. So what happened to all of those questions that people had? And I think with the rise of science, it's been so persuasive and so powerful you know it can do so much you know this idea of just taking what's measurable looking for an objective sort of third person understanding of physical matter and reality and it's been brilliant at helping us to understand and manipulate physical matter that we've kind of almost downgraded everything else um, so the idea of having a first person subjective experience of the cosmos, if you like, just looking to the stars and what, how does that make us feel? What does that tell us about life, about the world? That's what's been lost. And I, that was what I was interested in investigating, if you like, and, and trying to work out what role has that played through the history of humanity? And, and what, you know, do we need that now? Is that important? You first look at the, uh, the discovery in the modern day, relatively modern day, of the um, the Paleolithic cave paintings at, at um, Lascaux in France and and you know other places subsequently, I've been to the um, the reconstruction of the, of the cave at Altimira in 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 the north of Spain and and as you talk about in the book here, one of the things you immediately notice is that these are all depictions of animals. Like apart from the odd handprint, you don't really see depictions of people in these cave paintings. So let's talk about perhaps why. Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult when you're talking about paintings from the Paleolithic. I mean, obviously there was no, there were no written records. So we have to be really careful. Yeah, there are so many different theories about what these paintings mean. And the, the starting point that I had was I read in a, an astronomy textbook that there is this idea that there's this painting of a bull, this huge painting of a bull in Lascaux Cave with um, a cluster of dots above its shoulder and the theory that this might represent the constellation Taurus, um, which has the um, its eye, the star Aldebaran, and it has the Pleiades cluster of stars just above its shoulder. And I was just really intrigued by this. And I wanted to know, is this true? You know, could they really have been painting star maps um, back in the Paleolithic? So, I wanted to try and investigate that. And so we can't say anything definite about whether it definitely was, but it's certainly a very close match with the constellation of Taurus. Um, and there is even some work looking at how the sky would have looked back then, showing that actually the stars would have been an even closer match back at the time that these paintings were made. And also there's other work that people can do to try and get us a little bit closer to how the people of the Paleolithic might have been thinking about their world. So the kind of traditional idea about them is that they are painting the animals that are important to them, the kind of cycles that they would have seen on Earth, the, the different um, animals that mattered to them in their lives. Um, but there's also an idea that they were painting a sort of more 
holistic view of their cosmos in general. So one theory that was presented is that the the different animals are painted at different times of year. So when you have different animals painted together, you always have um, the horses painted first and the oryx and then the stags on top and they're painted. And the, the, each species is shown at its mating season. So this idea that you've got this sort of cycle of the seasons and the mating of the animals and that's all being shown together. And the, it's very much the paintings of people who sort of saw themselves as, as part of nature, if you like. They didn't really make a big separation between themselves and the animals that they saw around them. Um, but there's lots of sort of circumstantial evidence, if you like, suggesting that they were very interested in the sky as well. You know, the stars, the co different constellations that would have been rising and setting was changing with the seasons. There are anthropologists looking at more recent hunter-gatherer peoples who had lives similar in complexity to how we think the people would have lived in the Paleolithic and they invariably have very sophisticated cosmologies they're very interested in the different constellations that are rising and setting in the sky very interested in the solstices and this is all bound up in different mythologies so you know the changes they saw in the sky were wrapped up in the changes that they saw on the earth they wouldn't have seen a big separation between the two there's one more line of work looking at myths and tracing different versions of, of myths that are found all around the planet. There's one called the cosmic hunt where an animal is hunted and ends up going up into the sky and being transformed into a constellation. And you can find different versions of this myth among traditional people all around the world. And there was a really interesting study that was done to try and make a family tree of these myths using similar techniques to how DNA sequences are studied and concluding that the original version of that myth actually arose in Eurasia in Paleolithic times. So that is, again, supporting the idea that people at that time were interested in the sky and that elements of those myths can actually survive from then and still be told now. So if you put all of those things together, it does build a picture of people who not only didn't separate themselves from nature, but really didn't separate the earth from the sky. All of these changes were entwined and, and, and happening together. And so then you, you go on to look at the um, beginnings of the Neolithic and the sort of time when uh, human beings were first starting to adopt some form of agriculture. You talk about a site in modern-day Turkey called Gobegli Tepe, which is right bang in the centre of, of this area where agriculture starts. And again, for the, these first couple of chapters that we're talking about, we're going to change that in a moment, but the first couple of chapters, we really are talking about deduction, speculation as to, because there's no sort of like, you know, direct written evidence as to what these sites were used for. But this site and another site that's that's nearby in Turkey that are sort of like buildings, but like cave-like structures you talk about. Again, what do we think these might have been for? Yeah, Gobekli Tepe is really interesting because it's, um, it's 12,000 years old, it appears. So it's way before Stonehenge. It's just before the origins of farming, which happened in exactly this region. And you've got these great sort of circles with like stone benches around the edge of these circles that are dug down into the ground. And then in the center of the circles and around the edges as well, actually, there are these great pillars, these kind of flat stone pillars sort of t-shaped like flat t-shaped um, up to sort of 5.5 meters high um, and decorated with loincloths and, and necklaces um, there are lots of carvings of animals all around the place as well and so one thing that's interesting about this is that it was always assumed that the sort of neolithic revolution when humans first started to farm was this kind of key transition that happened 
And that perhaps in response to sort of climate change and sort of pressure on resources, people needed to start farming to produce enough food. And it was that that enabled larger settlements, more sophisticated societies. And then people could start building these megalithic monuments, stone circles, that sort of thing. But what's interesting about Gobekli Tepe is that this came first. You've got these huge stone monuments that would have required really sort of complex society and a lot of people working together to make them but it was actually just before people started farming so the argument is being made by the archaeologists working on it and and other scholars as well that there was some kind of change in mindset that caused people to make these sites and that change in mindset which had to do with people elevating themselves above nature was what then enabled people to contemplate farming if you see what I mean and so then you can ask well what were these sites all about Um, and again it's really difficult to say but you've got these circular enclosures that were dug down into the ground you've got these t-shapes that seem to be some kind of anthropomorphic being the archaeologists think they're some kind of transcendent being they don't seem they're not naturalistic they don't seem to be sort of mortal humans and you would have climbed into these circular enclosures through little porthole stones that often had like dead animals carved around the edge. So they think that they actually represented sort of portals to the underworld, uh, sort of the realm of the dead, if you like. There are skulls everywhere as well, markings on the skulls where it seems that um, these skulls were possibly hung up for display. So what it seems to be is there's a kind of change in mindset where in Lascaux you've, you've only got animals being painted. Now it's very much sort of these humans, possibly ancestors that are kind of centre stage. The animals have kind of been demoted. You've got They're much carved much smaller. And whereas the caves, there's a theory that these were seen as kind of portals to the underworld. Now people are building their own portals to the underworld. They're shaping the environment. They're shaping their sort of cosmos, if you like, to suit their own ideas. And it was that kind of change in mindset that then kind of allowed the transition to agriculture and to farming, which has then obviously led to all sorts of technological developments that have, you know, allowed us to be where we are today. And Although it's, of course, it's literally a few thousand years later in construction, you mentioned Stonehenge, and thinking now is that Stonehenge may have played a similar role in this sort of idea between Stonehenge and and a nearby site that would have been a site that represented the living and a site that represented the dead. Yeah, it's interesting. So it took several thousand years then for the techniques of farming to spread from um, from the Middle East to Europe and then to, to Ireland in the fourth millennium BC. And then you've got these stone tombs like Newgrange tomb, for example, and, and archaeologists working completely separately have got very similar theories about what those tombs represented and being, again, these sort of portals to the underworld, these sort of circular tombs with these alcoves inside and perhaps the and and Newgrange, of course, is uh, aligned to the winter solstice. So the sun shines straight in on the on the winter solstice and lights up the heart of the tomb. But as society became more complex, these tombs are getting bigger and bigger and you've got more going on around the outside of the tomb. You're getting more complex kind of uh, ceremonies, perhaps for sort of larger audiences. And so the idea is that those tombs could only go so far because you couldn't fit people inside to really see what was going on with the beam of sunlight coming in. And so the stone circles were perhaps a 
way of opening that up so you can have these sort of big mass audiences seeing these effects where Stonehenge, for example, is aligned to the um, it's the summer solstice sunrise and possibly more important was the winter solstice sunset. And so you've it's a kind of place for the ancestors where the beam of sunlight is kind of at the winter solstice is giving you this kind of message about the cycle of life. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listed to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Joe Marchant, and we're talking about her latest book, The Human Cosmos. And Joe, you next go on to talk about uh, the discovery again, the latter day discovery of the sort of Assyrian sites of like Nineveh and Babylon, and the discovery there of an ancient invention, which means we no longer have to speculate about what these people might have thought, what their mindsets were like. Um, no more. Stonehenge was a, a landing site for ancient aliens or something, you know. Now we know what they thought. Yes, now we have writing, <laughs> which makes a big difference. So in the next chapter, I'm looking at the discovery in particular of the library, this sort of collection of, of clay tablets of King Ashurbanipal, who was an Assyrian king. But he was obsessed with collecting texts from all over his empire, especially Babylonian texts. So this is and this library was was discovered in the 19th century. And so this is kind of the best and earliest kind of systematic insight we have into the sort of life and obsessions of an ancient civilization. We've got all of these texts here. And it turns out that what they were obsessed with 
was the sky. These are astrological omens. So the the priests were were watching the sky every night, looking at those wanderings of the planets and particularly eclipses of the moon. And all of these different astronomical events had different meanings, different things that were likely to happen. If there was an eclipse of the moon, that was very bad news for the king, for example. So he had to have his team of astronomers kind of watching for what was happening. And so that's interesting in itself that you can see still that that the celestial was bound up with the terrestrial. What happened in the sky was reflected on earth. But also what's interesting about the Babylonians, and as we follow them then through the centuries, is that because they were so interested in what was happening in the sky, they were very good at mathematics. And so they started to identify repeating cycles, repeating patterns in the sky. And they were putting numbers to those, developing arithmetic theories that they could then use to predict what was going to happen next. They didn't have to watch for an eclipse. They could work it out. They knew when the next one was going to be. And we often think of the beginnings of scientific astronomy as being with the ancient Greeks. But actually, it was the Babylonians who came up with the maths Initially, the Greeks were much more about sort of the geometric um, side of how the universe might be arranged. They thought it was all these sort of celestial spheres and the the planets kind of moving in these perfect circles. They weren't actually putting any specific numbers to that until they came into contact with the Babylonians. And it was really those two traditions coming together that formed the foundations of what we might think of today as astronomy and astrology. For that matter, the Babylonians also came up with the idea of horoscopes. But this was the time when we really started to look at the sky and describe it in terms of of numbers, of mathematics, of understanding and predicting what was going to happen next. Yeah, I was going to say that when you were just first describing the Babylonian world, you mentioned both. Uh, astrology and astronomy but of course really at this time and, and, and for a while this is it's, it's the same thing isn't it these are both the same idea yeah exactly I mean you can use either words so we don't really have a word I suppose that brings those two together but but yeah for them there would have been no sense in separating the two and there really wasn't uh, you know for many centuries later until the scientific revolution i guess so just a a little bit later and and to rome and and you start the next chapter off with this depiction of this uh battle that sees constantine basically come to power in rome and after his conversion therefore the widespread adoption of christianity so i want to talk about i guess first of all what a changing mindset to our sort of idea of the cosmos the adoption of monotheism brings But then also, of course, we think of this being the time of the adoption of widespread Christianity um, after, you know, many centuries of them being persecuted by, you know, we think of them being persecuted by pagan Rome. But actually, you know, those what we think of as pagan beliefs, particularly beliefs in the sun, remain extremely important at this time. Yeah, so what's interesting about Constantine is he is sort of credited with being the emperor who really sort of cemented Christianity. He was the one that supported it, made it the sort of official religion of the Roman Empire. And without him, Christianity wouldn't be the the force that it is today. It was quite a minor religion at the time. So, But what's interesting is when you look at his beliefs is that it was all mixed up with beliefs about the sun. He also identified himself with the sun. He also worshipped the sun. And he helped to embed a lot of beliefs about the sun into Christianity. So he was the one that sort of decreed that Sunday would be the day of rest, for example. Of course, you've also got Christmas happening on the winter solstice, and you've got Easter as well. 
um, which is also defined around the spring equinox. So when the, the days are just starting to become longer than the nights, when they're just sort of yeah winning over the nights, if you like, then th- that's Easter when sort of Christ is thought to have arisen. So you've got all of these kind of pagan sun worship elements within Christianity. So it wasn't quite the kind of abandoning um, the sun and introducing monotheism. It wasn't quite as clear cut as all that. But what is really interesting about that shift is it, for me, it really marks the moment when humanity changed from worshipping the sky itself, you know, worshipping the sky, worshipping the sun, worshipping the planets, which was pretty much a universal amongst all societies up until that point. And so monotheism with Judaism, Christianity, Islam is different because you've got this kind of abstract creator, this separate creator that sort of sits outside the universe if you like. So the cosmos is no longer kind of divine and alive in itself, but it's the product of a separate creator. And and a theme that kind of came through the whole book as I was sort of following these changing beliefs about the sky was really a, a separation, if you like, where we're separating ourselves from the universe that we live in. So we talked about in the Paleolithic, as best we can guess, that people didn't really have a separation between themselves and the world, between the world and the sky, between man and nature. And then you've got that kind of separation from nature, this idea of humans being able to create the sort of their own portals to the cosmos. Then you've got the idea of using sort of maths to explain and, and predict what's happening in the sky rather than needing to observe it directly. And now rather than worshipping the sky itself, we've got a separate creator. And that's a kind of trajectory, if you like, that then continues through the book, through the history of, of beliefs about the sky. So conflating a few of the of the later chapters together, you talk in, in numerous places about ideas of exploration and navigation and latterly you know sort of you know right up to like space exploration basically our our horizons have widened and widened from you know where you talk about cook's voyages captain cook's voyages to to later chapters talking about space exploration and indeed you know the ideas of whether or not there might be other life out there in the universe and and I sort of wanted to talk about how this widening of our horizons through various different sort of levels of exploration has changed how we place ourselves in the cosmos. Yeah so I look look in the book at the invention of clocks for example Mm. and kind of the the development of the idea of abstract time you know initially people took their time from from the sky from the sun and from the moon and when once we have mechanical clocks that completely changed. Again, we've separated time out, we've abstracted time from the cosmos around us. And now we see our clocks as more accurate than the sun. And then it's similar with space as well, that we've gone from using the sky for navigation to mathematicizing that, if you like. Now we've got this sort of abstract mathematical space and we've got technology that can tell us exactly where and when we are. So again, our subjective experience of of where we are is, is less important. And so as we're using more and more instruments and and technology to kind of measure and explore the world around us. Again, that first person subjective experience becomes less important. And in in one of the chapters, um, I'm talking about Captain Cook and his first visit to Tahiti and how he meets the Polynesian sailors there. And it's kind of that clash of cultures where 
Um, he's using his instruments to measure the transit of Venus because astronomers want to have a better idea about the size of the solar system so that they can then uh, navigate better. He's using his instruments and charts to navigate. And the Polynesian sailors don't have any of that. It's all around their direct experience, um, looking at using star compasses, for example, but also using wind direction, looking at the currents in the ocean, looking for uh, different wildlife. So, and their sort of navigator's knowledge all then being bound up with religious beliefs and stories as well. So it's this clash between maximising our sort of human subjective potential, if you like, or kind of outsourcing that to instruments and, and charts. And yeah, again, that's, that's carried on since, you know, now astronomers, they don't actually look through telescopes anymore. You know, we, we study the light that comes from the sky, but it's all digitized it's different frequencies of light are striking electronic de detectors and the data is being um, crunched by computers and that's allowing us to see far further than our naked senses ever could so it's it's giving us this unprecedented opportunity to explore further into the universe which i think is a, an amazing thing we understand so much more than we ever could have done we can sort of travel so much further but it's a different kind of journey if you like it's not um we've kind of sacrificed our own personal experience, if you like. It's not about what we see and feel and think anymore. It's about this uh, mathematical understanding of the sort of physical universe that's out there. I've been talking to Jo Martin. We've been talking about her latest book, The Human Cosmos, A Secret History of the Stars, which is out now in the UK from Canongate. Jo, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Great. Thank you very much. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.